The sermon today will come from the passage in Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21, um, which was read earlier. Uh, Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, and we ask that you might open our eyes that we would see uh, glorious things in your word, and that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but in, in in our own day, I often tend to long for peace. And by peace, I typically just mean that the troubles in life would kind of cease a little bit and quiet down. Um... But in our passage today in Isaiah 57, Isaiah is going to talk about true peace, peace that we have with God. And it starts off in verse 14 where a a voice speaks. It doesn't say who the voice is, but it says, And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 40, the same phrase, prepare the way, had been spoken as well. But in that case, Isaiah was talking about prepare the way for Yahweh, for the Lord to come to his people. But now, the voice here is saying, prepare the way for the people to come along the road to God. And it talks about the obstruction being removed from the people's way. Now, we could look at this historically and try to think about Isaiah talking to those who were going to go to Babylon and then come back, and how obstructions would be brought out of their way so they could get back to the Promised Land safely. But the rest of the passage is talking spiritually of reconciliation with God, of forgiveness of sin. And so the obstruction, chiefly, that's being highlighted here is not a physical obstruction on a real road, but it is a spiritual obstruction, sin, which gets between us and God and breaks our fellowship, our ability to have communion with God. So that's the obstacle that needs to be removed. And in this passage, we're going to see God speak, and in that, God is going to say essentially two things. One, yes, he is holy, but he dwells with his people. And two, he's going to show us how he makes peace for his people. So first, God is the holy one who dwells with his people. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So the Lord is introduced here by the prophet Isaiah. He's introduced as the next one to speak. But in this introduction, Isaiah speaks of the transcendence of God. Three times, in three different ways, he highlights the transcendence. First, he says that the Lord is high and lifted up, So this is to note God's prominence, just as if you were to look at a landscape and you were to see a mountain prominent in that landscape, it is high and lifted up and you can see it in relation to the rest of everything else. 
But even more so, God is prominent in position. So not prominent in size, but prominent in position, prominent in authority, prominent in importance. He is high and elevated in that sense. Secondly, he is the one who inhabits eternity. So God is not confined, as you and I are, by time. He's not constrained by time. He exists, he transcends time, kind of in a sense, exists outside of time. So he's transcendent there as well. Then he also is transcendent in that his name is holy. His name is holy. Now, Isaiah could have said that he is holy, and that would be true. But to say his name is holy is to even say that God's very name, one degree, so to speak, of separation, that itself is holy. And then the translator here, I think, correctly translated that as holy with a capital H. And so we have here even the sense that God's name is holy, meaning he defines what it means to be holy. Just like if you wanted to know how, how long a meter is, there's the standard meter, which is kept in Paris. It's made of, um, it's made of platinum, and it's, 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 a, it's a meter long, and every other meter matches up to that one meter. But that's the standard that everything is supposed to match up to. In the same way, God defines holy. He is the standard of what holy means. And anything else, which is to be similar to holy, would have to match up to him. And so the prophet Isaiah here is talking in these three ways of God transcending everything that we know. And he's giving us the sense of God being awe-inspiring. But then God speaks, and he says something that at first we would expect, but then he changes it as well, and we think, wait, we might think, why is that? So God begins to speak. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. We would expect that. His name is holy. Of course he would be in the high and holy place. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Now this, if we're thinking rationally, would not be expected. Now as Christians, we know that this is how God operates. He is transcendent, and he loves to dwell with his people. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where God was walking in the garden to go and meet Adam and Eve. We know that from how in the Old Testament, God designed the tabernacle so he could dwell among his people Israel. We know about the temple that Solomon built and how God brought his presence to dwell with his people there as well. And we know about Jesus who came and, so to speak, uh, tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. And we also know that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside each of us and that each Christian is a temple of God. So this story is something we know, it's something familiar, but it is actually very remarkable and extraordinary that God, 
who is transcendent, who is high and lifted up, who, you know, who inhabits eternity, time cannot constrain him, this same God dwells with creatures like us. And why? God continues to speak and tell us why. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to give us life. And to revive the heart of the contrite, to give us a new heart. Removing our unregenerate hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. And these two phrases don't just point to regeneration, although they do, but also points to the more general concept that God cares for his people, that God comes to the assistance of his people. Because God is transcendent, God is, he is sovereign, he is almighty, yet he cares for us, so whenever we pray, we can go with confidence to God, knowing that he has the power to accomplish in the world what we need him to accomplish. And if we're praying according to his will, we have the confidence that he will fulfill his will in this world at his timing. But as Charles Hodge said, prayer is important and we value it because we understand that God governs all his creatures and all their actions. And so our words are not merely, we hope these things could be done, but we know that if it's according to God's will, if it's along with what he wants in his word, and we're praying for those things, that he will accomplish these things for us, for those around us, in time and history. When we think about if you sometimes pray for people as they're traveling, you pray for traveling mercies. What are you praying for? You're praying that God will help the semi-driver not kind of fall asleep and turn over into the lane, but instead stay in his own lane while the person you're praying for is driving past that semi. And God can control that action and that circumstance just as much as he can control the other circumstances that people need to encounter, especially as we think about friends or family that are lost and don't know the Lord and how we yearn that they would come to know Christ and have saving faith in Christ. And yet the circumstances needed are not circumstances we can put in their lives. But God can direct those things to begin changing their hearts and minds as he's working in them. And God knows all the difficulties that we're up against. He knows, he knows the troubles that we face in life. He knows the sins that we fight. But God does not cast us off and turn us away. He is transcendent, and he dwells with those of his people, those of a contrite heart and a lowly spirit. We can apply this also as we think about, we know that God is one God, in three persons, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we can think about how that affects us as well. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, but also it says that the, the Holy Spirit provokes us to pray. 
and gives us the confidence to go to God to cry out, Abba, Father. We know that when we do pray, we have access to God the Father because Christ, who is our elder brother, is also our high priest. He's interceding for us. And we know that God is our Father. So uh, an interesting picture of this in human terms, so obviously it falls far short of the benefits we have in God. But there's an iconic picture of President John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office. And he's sitting there writing on the paper. And he's, he's set apart. He's in the Oval Office. He's at the president's desk. And it's this photograph of him. And there he is, the most powerful man in the world at that time, so to speak, in human terms, high and lifted up. But there, at his feet, around the legs of the desk, is his son. His son has access to him, the most powerful man in the world. And all he has to do is say, Daddy. And he has his father's attention. In a similar way, of course, on a great, grander scale, whenever we come to God, we are like that child talking to God the Father. And we have his attention when we call his name. And he hears us. So he is transcendent. But he dwells with us. And then two, God shows us that he makes peace for his people. So God continues to speak. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. For I will not contend forever. God opposes sin. For this reason, God opposes sinners in their sin. But God has brought reconciliation and peace, so he does not have to contend forever. And God gives us a reason. Why does he not contend forever? He tells us, for the spirit, the breath of life that he made, the spirit would grow faint before him. And just as Jesus had compassion on the multitudes when he saw them out there as sheep without a shepherd, so too God has compassion on us. And he knows the state that we would be in if there was no way for us to have our sins forgiven, if God were always contending with us. And he does not want that to be the outcome. And he has compassion on us. And then God continues to speak. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. So God here tells us that sin makes him angry. Now, so often we want to skip to the happy ending, and for good reason. Even God, when introducing this in verse 16, he starts with a happy ending, right? He's not going to contend forever. But now he is explaining how he views sin. And we must not forget that God hates sin. Now, when I was a child growing up, my mother would have to correct me. and Say, don't use the word hate, David. 
because I would, you know, I would use it about Brussels sprouts or cauliflower or something I didn't want to eat. Um, and so it wasn't just, so for me, hate was just this minor dislike of something. But for God, it's not a minor dislike. His anger, his wrath is against sin. And so, sin, not only, it doesn't please God at all, right? But it makes him angry. And so he decides he's going to punish sin. What does he say? He says, I struck him. Talking about, I punished the sinner. Now, there's a reason why sin causes trouble in the world, like a whirlwind, how it causes difficulty for people, how it doesn't turn out well, why sin never pays. And the reason why is because God punishes it. He will not let it succeed ultimately. But apart from the mercy of God, that punishment does not drive us to repentance. Because what does God say? He shows it again. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And so sinners, what we tend to do with our sin is we choose it and we seek it. We think we're being wise when we do, but we seek it instead of seeking to follow God's word. And so the backslider here, he keeps trying to solve his own problems by sinning keeps digging his hole deeper, thinking if he digs deeper, he'll get out of the hole. But he doesn't. And it's just like people who struggle with addiction. Sin is exactly the same way. Where someone who struggles with addiction, let's say, for example, drunkenness, they turn to it, they have bad results from it, and then they turn to it again. And they have this constant cycle that ends up in despair, bitterness, anger at themselves, constant cycle. Sin is the same way. We could talk about any kind of sin, whether it be the, the habitual thief or uh, someone who is covetous or any kind of sin out there. It tends to end in despair, heartache, but we just keep seeking it. As, as unregenerate sinners, we seek it, saying, this time will be different. I'll do the same thing, but this time a different outcome will happen. But it doesn't, because God continues to punish sin the same way. But now listen, so here we are, digging our own hole deeper, but now listen to God. Verse 18, I have seen his ways but I will heal him. I have seen his ways. God knows everything about each of us. There's nothing any of us have done, whether it be in deed, in word, or even in thought, that God has not seen. We cannot hide anything from God. But what does God say? I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. So we were dead in our sins. We, prior to Christ saving us, 
we're eating the bitter fruit of our evil ways. But God initiates and comes after his people and heals each of us. And no one's too far gone. And you can think about the miracles of Jesus, the different people that he healed. He healed lame people. He healed blind people. Uh, there was a situation where a, a girl had just recently died, and he rose her from the dead. He also called Lazarus out from the dead. And if you remember, Lazarus's sister, when Jesus said, roll the rock away, Lazarus' sister said, you know, the King James Version, Lord, by now he stinketh. You know, he was really dead. But all Jesus did was speak, and it was done. In the same way, just as it wasn't any harder for God to heal the lame man and help him walk than it was to heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead after being dead for four days, so too, no matter how far gone any person is, no matter how far gone any institution or denomination or nation is and seems to be to us that they are too far gone, God can heal them. God can bring them back. And it's no harder for God to bring back an entire nation of people than it is for God to heal a lame man or for Christ to call out Lazarus from the dead. All God must do is speak and it is done. And now, look at what God says. So I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. I will lead him. So we have here a picture of God restoring a right relationship to this person that he has healed. He was a backslider, but God has healed him. And now it's like being back in the Garden of Eden, where... God's in charge. God's giving the commands before Adam sinned. And everything is back where it's supposed to be. There's communion and fellowship with God. And there is restoration to this right relationship where God's in charge and we are glorifying him. And then, what does the Lord say? Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The word peace there is repeated. God is emphasizing that there's a total peace, a total healing. In our own day, when we want peace, let's say between nations or something, what we really are asking for is a ceasefire. We just want a detente. We don't want them to be fighting us anymore, and we're going to stop fighting them for now. But that's not the peace God gives us. The peace God gives us is ultimate, total peace, where we, who were his enemies at war with him, become his children who love him and serve him. A total change and complete peace. And to those who are near, to, what does he say, to the far and to the near, now this is vague, and it can be applied in many different ways. And throughout history, 
it ought to be applied in those different ways. So for example, at the time Isaiah wrote this, he was thinking of those who were near would be people in his time, and those who are far would be the people in the future he was talking to and ministering to. When Israel was in Babylon in exile, there were those who'd been left behind in the promised land. Those would be those who were near, and those in Babylon would be those who are far. They feel like they're far from God, right? In the New Testament, Peter talks in Acts chapter 2 to the crowd, and he says that the promise of baptism, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise given from the Father was to you and to your children and to all who are far off. So in that sense, it would be the same as what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, where the near are those, the Jews, in the covenant, and the far are the Gentiles outside the covenant. But in our own day, we could also apply this as the near being those who grew up in the church, who were baptized into the church, part of the visible covenant. Those who are the ones who are near, and the ones who are far are the lost, our neighbors and others who don't know the Lord. And so peace is what Christ has purchased for us to reconcile us to God. It's a total peace, and it's not just for us. It's for all God's people who are elect, those who are already in the covenant and near, and those who feel far off, or they feel far off because they are, they don't know who Christ is yet, and they will one day, or even if they feel far off because of their backsliding. And God has promised that he will make from those people one church from all these different tribes and tongues and nations, reconciling different peoples together because we are reconciled first to God. And now God brings us to his concluding statement. And so far, God has been very encouraging during this whole thing, but the last statement is a little jarring. Verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All people, all men, women, children, were made to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. But sinners, we sinners, have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so the wicked are those unrepentant. They ought to give glory to God, but the glory that's due God, they give to various idols in their lives. And their consciences condemn them for their sins, but they, they compound their sin. And they also seek to appease their consciences. So they end up in a constant negotiation, an argument inside themselves, trying to prove how good they are, trying to prove that they are moral, and they do care, because their conscience shows them their sins, and they know that what they're doing is not good. And so if we are not in Christ, we're not forgiven. And if we're not in Christ, we're still dead in our sins. 
And so in speaking of this, God shows the restlessness that unforgiven people are in. St. Augustine actually speaks of his own restlessness in his um, book, The Confessions, where he's talking about his life and how God brought him to him. He says, he's talking to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And that rest is the peace that God gives to his people. But if we don't have Christ, everything, even the good things in life, become idols. Our careers, uh, our marriages, families, those who are not married, their love interests can become idols. Net worth can become an idol, any of those things. But when we turn from our sin and we turn in faith to Christ, all the condemnation that our consciences accuse us of, all that condemnation we rightly deserve is covered by the blood of Christ. And we're reconciled with God. And we have peace with God. And because of that, we have peace with each other. And in that case, then, our careers have a proper place where we can excel as craftsmen because we serve God first. Our marriages have a proper place of joy, not of regret or bitterness. Our families, likewise, find their place in serving God's kingdom and seeing the family devoted to God and to his service. And so as we think about this kind of jarring ending that God gives us, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Let us remember to pray for lost family members, lost friends, neighbors who don't know the Lord, those in our city, our state, our nation, who don't know Christ. Let us remember that outside of Christ, there is no peace. And that Christ is the only name under heaven given among men whereby our sins can be wiped away and we can be reconciled with God and we can enjoy fellowship and communion with him. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for all that you have done for us and how you've worked in our hearts and lives and healed us. And we ask that you would be with our friends and family who do not know you, our neighbors who do not know you, and that you would bring the gospel to them and that you would, bring, you would grant them repentance and bring them to a saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.